This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as always, from his back porch, where he's maintaining his pool in impeccable condition, is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Yeah, it was, it was getting bubbly. I was sucking down air into the pool pump, so... Yeah, and then but you told me you had to put water in it, and then you had to run over and stop the water from going in it, so you, you can't have too much water, because then that floods your house or something, so <laughs> it, it all sounds very complex. I am the world's least capable pool man. <laughs> well, that's okay, because today we're going to be talking about the uh, the symbols and the meaning behind the things that we see in the resurrection account, because you're good at that. The pool thing, uh, maybe not, but <laughs> when we talk about the symbols of the resurrection, um, I'll look to you for, for information there. Uh, it's rich stuff. Yes. Rich stuff. I love this. Well, we just concluded Easter weekend, and uh, I hope that everybody enjoyed the, the Easter Sunday service. I know that I did. It was a beautiful service. Um, would have been so much cooler if we could have all been there together. Uh, I think that everybody in the church is ready for a big group hug at this point. There's just there's lots of people that aren't huggers that have suddenly turned into I want to be a hugger. So uh, there's going to be lots of hugging. I, I saw one of Tracy's Facebook posts talking about she wanted everybody to bring it in for a big hug. Yeah, which is you know my wife is my wife and I are both the same way. We like our space. You know, we like the space between people, but she's ready. She's ready for like to go through and just have the hug line set up and just walk down the line and get hugs from everybody. But Man. so that would have made it better, but it was a really really wonderful uh, virtual service. Uh, very much enjoyed. The music was great. Tom's message was great. Your your introduction was great. It was just all really a uh, very meaningful service for people, and I, I've seen nothing but good reactions to it. So I'm really glad that we were able to share that with everyone. And um, so this podcast, and probably the next several podcasts, uh, Sam and I are going to be looking back at the resurrection and sort of and talking about what happened and some of the symbolism. And there's so many meaningful things that are that are pictures uh, in the in the events of the resurrection. Um, one of the things that one of the reasons why we wanted to do this and to to pause and spend some time on the resurrection is this really is at the core of our faith. Um, you know, there's uh, people make a lot of Christmas and it's an incredible miracle. Uh, they make a lot of the cross and, and that is the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. Um, but at Easter, the resurrection is what differentiates our faith from any other faith on on the planet that that God has defeated sin and death and the resurrection is the climax of that victory. Mm-hmm. And so you look at the at the apostles when they're in the early church, you know, if you read the book of Acts, they spent more time talking about the resurrection than they did the cross. But if you come into modern times, we spend I think significantly more time talking about the cross than the resurrection, and so I want to I want to drill down here um, and really kind of point out that the resurrection really is the climax of victory 
and the Christian faith. I, do you have a theory as to why that is? That pe- I, I agree with you, by the way, that, that modern-day Christians tend to talk more about the cross than the resurrection. Do you have any theory about why that is? I have a theory that just came to me when you asked that. <laughs> so take this for what it's worth. I, you know, I think in the first century, those people were far more accustomed to pain and suffering. And so the cross entering into extreme suffering was amazing, but it wasn't abnormal. Having somebody that came to in the midst of their suffering and overcame it with resurrection was powerful. And I think when you get in more comfortable uh, cultures like in America, we look at suffering as the great anomaly. So the cross becomes super magnified in our eyes because we don't suffer like that. Um, and it becomes more more stunning to us. I mean, that's that's at least a guess. I, I like that theory, actually, because I do think that comfort is the great enemy of the church, that mm-hmm. the more comfortable we become and the more ensconced in power we become, um, that's not. That's never been the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to go and make disciples. Period. That's that's, right. that's what we do. You know, and so uh, any time that we find ourselves being comfortable, we seem to forget that we're here to go and make disciples. Instead, we want to sit around and make rules or or build big buildings, which are fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with big buildings or mm-hmm. or or mega churches or anything. I'm not picking on that at all. I mean, our church is a good, healthy sized church. Um, but I do believe that any time that we forget that Jesus told us to go and make disciples. That's the Great Commission. You know, that's yeah. the thing that we need to look at. You know, the other thing we were talking about just before we hit record, um, there's a lot of both forensic facts that establish mm-hmm. the resurrection, but the thing that resonated most with both you and I when we were talking about it, if you recall, was the way that it changed the first church. Those those people that were there right after Jesus rose from the dead, how they lived lives that were completely devoid of the fear of death or mm-hmm. or of anything that would get in their way of following Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it's like we, we were just talking about that whole idea of comfort and, you know, the early apostles, like you were talking about, the end of the story leading up to the passion of Jesus, they're all running away. They're all terrified. Peter's denying them. They're falling all over themselves to get away from any potential of suffering. And then all of a sudden, on the other side of the resurrection, you have these guys that are utterly bold. And, you know, what the resurrection does is it doesn't spare you from suffering. It doesn't, you know, just give you a life of comfort and say, congratulations, you're a Christian. But it gives you this unshakable perspective that no matter what suffering comes against you, no matter what loss comes against you, even if it's the loss of your life, you are more than a conqueror because Christ and his resurrection has overcome all of it. And so these guys could race now with boldness and do really amazing things with the absolute confidence that even if this world delivered the very worst to them. So we know and we understand how the cross connects to the Feast of Passover and all the symbols for Passover because we, mm-hmm. we talked about that a great deal in our uh, the podcast coming up to uh, Easter Sunday. So um, in this case, when we're talking about the resurrection, there's a connection to a different one of the of the feasts, a different mm-hmm. celebration that Israel has. It was Yom Kippur. Now, before we start talking about that, though, uh, there's five verses in Hebrews chapter 9. And if I could just kind of take people through these, it's Hebrews chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 23 down to verse 28, where it reads, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So before before you go on, because that's a lot to take in. Right. There's, when it's talking about the copies of the heavenly things. Right. What does that what, mean? Copies, what, like a photocopy? <laughs> so what that's saying, and it's bold. You know, remember, this is written, you know, right after the time of Jesus. It's saying that all of these festivals that the Israelites have been doing since the days that Moses got the law on Mount Sinai and all these festivals were spelled out, what it's saying is all those were just copies of something greater. It, it was to whet your appetite for the fulfillment of those things. So all these festivals like Passover, you know, at the Last Supper, Jesus says all of that was meant to talk about me. And the same is going to be true. Every festival, all the law is speaking of Jesus. So it's all that stuff, everything that they've been practicing for 1,500 years is just a copy of the heavenly thing that was to come. And verse 24 makes that apparent because it reads, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, that would be the temple, which are copies of the true things, which is what you were just saying, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, a sacrifice that can speak on our behalf before God in Hmm. heaven. Um, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. He used the blood of bulls and goats. For then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So there's, boy, there's a lot of things there. There's, there's this idea of, well, there, this, this idea of repetition, uh, not to offer himself repeatedly. What was being offered repeatedly? That's the Yom Kippur reference, right? So yeah, there was a festival, or actually a, a day of atonement is what Yom Kippur means. And it, so what would happen on that, and they, they took it extremely serious, because this is every year the sins of Israel, the sins of the high priest and his family and all the priests would have to be atoned for. And so they had this particular celebration, and it was a big deal for the high priest. And if you look at the way that the passion narrative of Jesus is laid out, the Gospels are giving you tons of clues that Jesus is the greater fulfillment of all the stuff that they had to do for the Day of Atonement. So let's, let me just kind of describe some of the major components of what they were doing for Yom Kippur and the lifetime of Jesus, okay? So on the night before, the priest would go in, and there was only one day of the whole year in the temple, you had a room that was called the Holy of Holies. That's where God's glory supposedly dwelled, right? It's, and and he, God's glory dwelled in the tabernacle. God's glory dwelled in Solomon's temple. Now here's the second temple. It's the holiest room where only the high priest can go into this room once per year. And so he was going to go in there with the blood of slain animals, these, these flawless animals, and he was going to sprinkle blood all around, and that blood would atone for the sins of Israel. But 
leading up to that, the priest had to make sure that his conscience was clean, that he was not in sin. And so the night before, he had to carry out these duties. He wasn't allowed to sleep. He had to stay awake. And in fact, he was in his temple quarters and he'd have this group of priests that was with him. And their job was to make sure that he never nodded off because they were afraid he'd have some kind of corrupt dream or some sinful thing going on in his dream. And so he was to stay awake all night reading the Torah, just protecting himself against any defilement or sin. And so what do you hear with that? Here you have the high priest who is desperately having his friends keep him awake, not fall asleep on him, right? Well, at the Garden of Gethsemane, you see the reflection of that. Jesus, the high priest, pleading with God the Father. And what are his closest friends doing all around him? They're falling asleep. They can't stay awake with him. And so during the Day of Atonement, that next morning, there were set prescribed rituals. For example, the priest on that day changed into five different sets of clothing. And as he was done with his clothing, after the sacrifice and everything else had been made, when he left the Holy of Holies, he would take the linens, because he would normally he would wear these golden robes as the high priest. But on this day, he was, he was required to wear pure white linens. And when he was done sprinkling the blood and all of Yom Kippur was done, he was required to take off that outfit, fold it up, leave it in the most holy place, and then he left. And so the high priest did a number of sacrifices before that. He sacrificed a bull for the sins of himself and his family. And then after that, he would go and he would be presented with two goats. And the priest would draw, the high priest would draw lots to determine which of those goats would be sacrificed for the Lord and which of those goats would be the scapegoat. And so then he would slaughter the goat that was the lot fell upon for God, and he'd place his hands upon the scapegoat. And symbolically, what he was doing was imputing the sins of Israel upon this goat, and they would tie a scarlet thread around the horns of that goat and then send him outside of the city where he would die, and the, per- the priest that led this goat out would have everybody offering him a drink, and he, because of this ritual, he was to refuse all the drinks until the, he got the scapegoat far enough away, and he would lead and throw the, the scapegoat down a ravine. Um, and so in that, what you, you're hearing all these symbolisms of you know, Jesus. Imagine this. Jesus is standing before the crowds, and what does Pontius Pilate do? He takes Jesus... And he brings forth Barabbas, and he's saying one of them's going to die, and one of them is going to be set free, except Jesus now becomes both. He's the one who's going to die, and he's going to be taken outside the city. What does Pilate do? He does the same thing that the high priest would have to do before he goes about sacrificing the goat. He washes himself. He washes his hands. Then, then what does he have? The Roman soldiers, what do they do? They wrap Jesus in scarlet before they take him and lead him outside the city. Like all of these echoes of Yom, Yom Kippur are taking place. Jesus is taking all of the, he's doing the atoning work for the sins of all humanity. They're being laid upon himself.
this may seem like I'm backing up here just a little bit, but uh, Yom Kippur, uh, we've talked a lot about what specifically happened there, but the meaning of it, didn't they make sacrifices like all year round? Why? Wh- wh- mm-hmm. What was the difference between the sacrifice of, of animals and the blood at the altar on, a, on just any given Tuesday and or whatever, the 15th day of Nisan or <laughs> whatever they called it back then, but just on any other day versus the sacrifices that were made on Yom Kippur. What was what was really special about this atonement? This atonement was the only day in which the blood of that sacrifice could go into the presence of God. Oh, so on, okay. on Yom Kippur, this high priest would take this bowl of blood from the sacrifice. He would go through the, the first room of the, the tabernacle or the the temple and he would go beyond the veil into the holy of holies the most holy place and that's where god's glory dwelt and he would sprinkle this blood it's why he had to be absolutely sure that you know that he had been praying that he wasn't defiled there was nothing dirty about him um because if you weren't allowed to go in that room you weren't allowed to touch the ark of the covenant or you would die. I mean, that's very, very plain. And, and, and really clear. die. <laughs> really you really killed, die. Yes, exactly. Really die. And so he would go into the presence of God with this blood of goats and bulls, and he would sprinkle it around the room and, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so, in a, so when you get to the resurrection in John's account, the way that he lays out the resurrection is showing you the brilliance of how Jesus has finally and perfectly fulfilled Yom Kippur. Remember, every year the high priest would do all these things and he would have to come with more goats and bulls the next year and sacrifice them and sacrifice them. And Hebrews is coming and saying, all that was just a copy. It was just a shadow of what is the ultimate substance behind it, the true heavenly form, which is Jesus. You know, he is the high priest. You know, and it's interesting. We talked about how the high priest had five different garments that he would wear throughout the day on Yom Kippur. And it just so happens that if you follow the gospel narratives and you weave them together, Jesus has five different garments that he's going to wear for Yom Kippur. You have the garments that he wears when he comes into the city. Then he's taken to Herod where he's stripped and put they put robes on him and they mock him. Then he puts back his own clothes. Then they go before Pilate and the soldiers put the crown of thorns and the the robes on him. And then he is stripped, taken to the cross and crucified. And the last garment that our great high priest Jesus will wear on the true day of atonement is going to be the burial cloths. Hmm. So Yom Kippur then was this annual time when they had the atonement for sin. Again, they sacrificed things all year long mm-hmm. um, for at the drop of a hat, it seemed like. The purpose of those sacrifices, was that also to have a covering, like a temporary covering for sin? Or was that, sure. were, those be, were those being done for other reasons also. I mean, there's there's lots of. I mean, if you if you fly through the book of Leviticus and just look at the chapter titles, you know, there's all sorts of reasons for the different sacrifices. Some okay. of them are done with thanksgiving. Some of them are done for repentance. Some of them are done for for various reasons. You so, know, dedi- dedicating you know newborns 
to the Lord. I mean, there's there's a lot of different reasons why you'd sacrifice. So if there's a, basically if it's an emotional moment, we're going to kill something. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying, you know, See, it really does seem like that. It yeah. does. It's like you know, it's like an emotional moment. This is a this is a we're, we're having quite a moment here. Sam, do you have a dove? <laughs> like, uh, any? Can you go get one of the lambs? You know that kind of thing. So it does. Uh, but this particular time, this Yom Kippur, this was special because this one sacrifice, this one thing, was atoning for the sins of all of the people. Right. So this was God's like people. This, yeah. Yeah. This was like one for many, and I think that was all the point in uh, in Hebrews as well is that this this sacrifice was special because this one sacrifice took care of everything. What things about the actual resurrection events themselves make that connection? I mean, you talked about Jesus. Oh, and, this is so good. You know, this is my favorite. This, okay. this is what gives me goosebumps. But you, you have to get your, your mental imagination going with me, okay? All so right. remember, we're, we're Yom Kippur. The, only the high priest is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And what would, in the days of Moses or the days of Solomon's temple, what would the high priest have seen when he went into the Holy of Holies, this room? There was only one piece of furniture that God had decorating his room. And it was this golden box. And inside of it, it held, you know, things like the Ten Commandments and a jar of manna. But on top of this golden box, right, this rectangular box, there were two angels that were facing each other with their wings outstretched toward the middle. And in between them, on the on the top of this box, was something called the mercy seat. And that's where you would sprinkle the blood for the atonement of sins, right? So you, get, you got this picture in your mind. Mm-hmm. And only the high priest can go in there once per year. And it's on the Day of Atonement. So what happens when you get to the, the crucifixion? One, the, when Jesus dies, we're told that this earthquake happens and it rips the temple veil wide open. So this is now open. And so man has access to God. But then you have the mourning that follows, like the grief and the disciples are in agony. And by the way, as a side note, the Ark of the Covenant had not been seen in Israel for 600 years at this point. When Babylon conquered Israel in 586, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen and melted down. God's glory had already departed from it, so it wasn't, you know, God's glory wasn't still there. Now, now wait a minute, Sam. I have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. They found that thing. They <laughs> yeah. See, yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Let me tell you something. When it, now, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, folks, is entirely fictitious. They did not find the Ark of the Covenant. Like Sam says, it was melted down. But that was a pretty accurate representation of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, then you, that's your mental image of this yeah. box with the angels with their wings extended. So Yeah, and if you read the book of Exodus, it describes how this thing was to be made and all of its dimensions and how many cubits and inches and everything else it was going to be and what it was to be made with. And... And so they, the people of Israel had been without the Ark of the Covenant for 600 years. And so when they would do the Day of Atonement after the, the Solomon's temple was destroyed, they went into an empty room. The Holy of Holies was empty. They would go in there and sprinkle blood on the curtains. On, they would sprinkle it up. They would sprinkle it on the floor, and they would cast it seven times, and then he would leave. But there was no Ark of the Covenant, and so Israel was kind of incomplete but they would still do it faithful even though they didn't have the ark of the covenant and that means so, that that's what you're saying though is that the glory of god had departed from it that's how they correct. would have looked at it is that god's glory no longer lived yeah well the prophets them. the prophets said so okay. they departed from the god departed from the temple before they were destroyed by the babylonians and so 
God's glory has, I, we don't know, had it come back, had he come back to the temple, the ark is not there anymore. Oh, okay. And so, so what makes the morning of the resurrection beautiful? Remember, in Hebrews, it's talking about how Jesus goes into the most holy place and how he, he had established the fulfillment of all the things that were just copies. The Ark of the Covenant, the golden box, that was just a copy of something that God was prophesying about that would come. And so on the morning of the resurrection, the women come to the tomb. They see it rolled away. Mary Magdalene runs to get the apostles. She goes in, tells them that the stone had been rolled away. Peter and John race back to the tomb along with Mary, and that's where we pick up the account of Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 3. It says, so Peter went out with the other apostles, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together, but the other apostle, who's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, what's really significant about this is if you go to the celebration of Yom Kippur and what the priest is required to do, you can look this up in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 23. It says, when the priest was done with his work on the Day of Atonement, he was to take off those pure white linens that he was wearing. When he went into the most holy place, he was to take them off, fold them up, leave them in the most holy place, and put on his other priestly garment and leave. And so when John and Peter show up and they see the linen cloths lying there, it's like the great high priest is saying, my work of atonement is done here. Mm. And they see the face cloths where, where they've been on Jesus' head. It's not lying with them, but it's folded up by itself. And so they're looking and they're marveling, right? And, and so they leave. And you get to verse 11, and this is just utterly beautiful to me. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. It shows you how deep her love was for Jesus, how much she longed to be with him again. And it says, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, seating where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And so now you're imagining, okay, here's this stone bed, The linens are still there. What would those linens have looked like if they were wrapped around Jesus' body after being scourged by the Romans and crucified and wearing a crown of thorns? These things are going to be absolutely drenched with the blood of the Lamb of God, right? Mm -hmm. These things are drenched with blood, and on either side of that blood, you have these glorious angels, one at the head, one at the feet, And what is Mary seeing there? She doesn't realize it, by the way. She doesn't put it together as she's peering in. But what John totally wants us, or the Spirit totally wants us to see is, if Peter and John got to see those linens that were left inside the holy place, the high priest's work is done, when Mary looks in, she's seeing the fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant, the genuine article. You know, the one that was given to Moses, as Hebrew says, it was just a copy of what great atoning accomplishment God would do down the road. And here, Mary Magdalene is looking in and seeing the real deal. Real angels surrounding the real blood that what atoned for the sins of all humanity. And what it's saying is Yom Kippur, the real deal, the genuine article is done and the resurrection and the empty tomb, that becomes the holy of holies. That becomes the most holy place. And here's what's wild. God chose not to give that vision to Peter and John. They got to see the linens and then they raced back home. 
But here you have Mary Magdalene, who is a demoniac, probably a former prostitute, somebody that the world looked down and, and just shamed that Jesus had shown affection and exalted her, and now she, peering into the empty tomb, takes the place of the great high priest. And a woman to boot. I mean, that's the other yeah. thing. Your high priest was not going to be a woman. Yeah, I mean, there were all sorts of restrictions on who could be the high priest. You had to be a Levite. You had to be from the tribe of Aaron. You had to have, you know, all the family credentials. You had to be a male. You had to, all these things. And when Mary Magdalene is the one that God gives this vision to, it is breaking every rule. Hmm. In the passage in Hebrews, when we were reading through that, um, I was using my Logos Bible software, and one of the the habits that I have is I create a parallel version between um, our, you know, the the ver- the translation that all good Calvinists must read, which is the English Standard Version, and then <laughs> next to it, I have uh, something called the Lexham English Bible, which is based on the Lexham. Um, Interlinears, so it reads incredibly awkwardly, but it does give you the exact literal words from spot to spot. And at that point, when when the ESV says copies, because we think of copies, right? What do we think of? We think of something that looks just like the the actual thing. A copy is an, it's identical. If it's a copy of it, it's the same thing. If I copy, if I make a copy of you, it's going to look just like you. So we think of copy sort of as clone. That's how we regard it in our modern parlance. But that's not what the word there actually means. And, and the Lexham English Bible, in its helpful way of very awkward rendering, ref- said the word they translated it to was sketches, like an illustration, huh. like a line drawing, because that's really what the word means. So huh. the, to me, I'm picturing Mary looking in there, and what she's looking at there is the three-dimensional truth, the, the, the perfect yeah. true Ark of the Covenant scene and the Holy of Holies at that spot versus everything else that was this little two-dimensional line drawing by comparison. She's seeing the true 3D fleshed out thing in front of her. So that's the other cool thing about it is that the truest representation of this took place not in the Holy of Holies, not in the middle of all of the pomp and ceremony and rituals, but it occurred in a stone tomb outside of town with the blood of the true Lamb of God on linens and the angels and, like you say, a demoniac, probably former prostitute, standing there in front of it. I mean, that's just God's way of saying, I'm kicking down all of the barriers. This this redemption, this gospel is for everybody. It is not, yeah. it is not something that's going to be controlled by the religious elite. This goes to everyone. Everyone can stand here before this and see their atonement being made for them. That's just awesome. It is. I love that he does that. Um, and, and it's, you know, chapter 10 of, of Hebrews goes on and it says, The law, which includes all the festivals and everything else, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And so Mary is seeing the substance and all the Old Testament stuff that had been captured, all those festivals, as good as they were, because they were pointing people's faith toward a future event. But they were just the shadows of the real thing. And Mary sees the real thing. Yeah. Yeah. I just I love that. It is though when you start to realize the language that's being used, like the sketches, the shadows, you know, the you know, God's making the point that all of these things that when when you read them in the Old Testament and you read how they were supposed to be set up, you read the description of the Ark of the Covenant, the description of the of the temple and how it should be built. These things are incredibly detailed and full mm-hmm. of 
precious materials and all kinds of things that we would look at them and say, this would be one impressive sight. This would be one amazing thing to see. And yet, compared to what God is going to do for us, they were all just sketches. They were shadows. They were ephemeral. They, they was like pushing smoke. There, there's no substance to them. And yet those were the greatest rituals and the most perfect representations that man could come up, come up with in their religious sensibilities were nothing. They were smoke. They were insubstantial. What was, what is the, uh, what's the term from uh, Ecclesiastes? Hevel? Hevel, they're, yeah, yeah. They're like they're like it's like smoke. It's like it disappears as soon as you look at it. It changes shape and goes away, you know. Compared to what the true redemption yeah. was, it describes in in Matthew's account, and I'm jumping over to that now. But it describes in Matthew's account that there was an angel that rolled away the stone in front of the tomb and then was sitting on top of it, mm-hmm. and that his clothes looked like lightning they were white and there was something about their appearance that looked like lightning and you were theorizing that the angels inside the tomb would have also been similarly like this this i somehow something about them was had this appearance of lightning and you tied that into the uh transfiguration as well yeah that's so i'm totally speculating here so take this with a grain of salt that's fine we're (laughs) in total speculation land here but it's interesting But one of the things that's fascinating, when Jesus takes his inner circle of disciples to the transfiguration where he reveals his glory to them, um, he's with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the description that's given is that his clothing is radiant like lightning. It uses that same expression. And so this is what the women see. So Mary races to to tell the apostles, and when she gets there, she tells them what she's seen. And I find it fascinating that when Peter hears her talking about the transfiguration, Jesus had told the three apostles at the transfiguration, don't tell anybody about this until after the resurrection. But I can imagine her going, you wouldn't believe it. We saw this this being, and it was (laughs) radiating like lightning. And I can just imagine Peter and John sitting at that moment immediately turning their heads and looking at each other like we've seen something like that before <laughs> and so and those are the two they get up and they sprint to the tomb my guess is and think about the boldness that took right they these are guys that just ran <laughs> they're the ones that that denied peter denied jesus three times you know all the apostles are in hiding you know and now when they hear that something about the description that mary magdalene gives they're like oh my goodness we we've seen that before, yeah. and they they bail and they run and they're willing to risk their life on the hope of what they're going to find. Right, and the last time that any of them heard about the tomb, uh, again from Matthew's account, we know that the 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 chief priests and the the religious leaders had gone to Pontius Pilate and said, "Hey, we think there's a plot out there where these disciples are you know his disciples are going to come steal his body away and make it sound like he." had come back from the dead because he said he was going to. And so Mm -hmm. Pilate had actually put a guard, a Roman guard on there, which is like between four and 16 soldiers, depending. But Mm -hmm. still, even four heavily armed Roman soldiers. Yeah, you don't want to mess with them. That's, you know, they would have literally been running to their death had those soldiers still been there. Mm -hmm. And, And something that happened at that tomb spooked (laughs) <laughs> these soldiers to the point that they weren't there anymore by the time that the disciples arrived. So, But they didn't know that. Peter and John yeah. didn't know that. As far as they knew, they were running into the teeth of a Roman guard. Yeah. I mean, that's just, just amazing. Abso- absolute 
just disregard for their own lives at this point. Something, <laughs> something was really profound to okay. them. Um, okay, so were there other connections between what was going on here and Yom Kippur that we need to go through? Or I'm sure there are. Like, I just started researching this within the past week, and I'm, you know, it's like one thing after the next where you see all these different festivals that kind of combine into this last week of Jesus' life with real significance. Um, but in John's account, where he goes from that, from that moment where, where Mary is looking in and she sees the, the Ark of the Covenant in real life, uh, the angel say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to him, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she, <laughs> said, she, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Um, and Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And so, you know, we read that account, and it's it's really pretty pretty powerful to imagine this reunion and just to imagine the heart being overwhelmed, you know, Mary's heart being overwhelmed at seeing Jesus. But again, John, the Spirit is inspiring John to write this account in a way that also takes us back to the Old Testament to announce something really profound to us. Um, Mary here, she's a brand new person. She's been redeemed. She's at the tomb. She's, she's longing to see Jesus. And when she finally sees him, who does she think that he is? Well, she thinks he's a gardener. Hmm. And what are his first words to her? Woman. Uh, woman, why are you weeping? His first word to her is woman. And that is to provoke in us something. You know, the fact that she assumes he's a gardener, that's no accident. That's a God-given insight. Because if you go back, let me tell you another story. Go back all the way to the beginning of the opening pages of the Bible, and you have God who comes down to Adam. Jesus will be called the last Adam, right? God comes down to Adam, and he says, you know, it's not good that man should be alone. And so what does he do? He takes Adam though he has done absolutely nothing wrong. He's committed no sin. He's a sinless man. And what does he do? He wounds him, puts him into a deep sleep, and wounds his side. And from the wound, from the blood and the wound and everything else, he pulls this substance, you know, a lot of, oftentimes we'll say a rib, and he creates a bride. And then he raises up Adam, the sinless man, in a garden and presents the bride to him. And so... And what are Adam's first words? Woman. Like, that's, that's, I will call her woman. And so what this, is, what this is communicating to us is Jesus, the last Adam, who is also the sinless man, who God also wants to fashion a bride for him, puts him into the deep sleep of death. His side is going to be wounded while he's dead on the cross, and it gushes forth this blood and water. And what does that blood and water do? It makes all things new. Hmm. 
it creates a bride for him. And he's taken from the cross in his sleep of death. He's put into the tomb and he is raised up. And when he sees Mary Magdalene, you know, you see all these goofy books by Dan Brown that claim that Mary Magdalene was Jesus's wife. Well, the reality is that she is his bride and so are we. Right. We are the bride of Christ, the church. And when Christ is raised up from his sleep, she represents the church being presented to him. And so John is stacking the resurrection with meaning. It's not only, you know, that we have access into the Holy of Holies and the atonement is done and all of this stuff, but God is announcing we are a new creation in Christ. We are made new. It's a brand new beginning, just as it was for Adam and Eve. Now it will be for Christ and his church. You know, I think it's one of the most powerful arguments for the resurrection to see how it transformed the lives of the people. And this is one of the places where even even some of the more skeptical people who, who struggle to believe in the Gospels will admit they don't know how to address this issue. Um, there's no answer for it. It would be, you know, if I, if I took you to downtown Fort Lauderdale and we came down the elevator and we stepped out of a building into a street and everybody was running in panic in one direction, screaming, just everybody's running, and we have no information of what actually happened, we're going to make a logical assumption that something in the opposite direction is really frightening. <laughs> you know? Yes. Some, something has happened that way because everybody seems to be responding in a particular way. And when you look in the decades immediately following the resurrection, the Roman world is turned upside down. The writings, the decrees that start coming from Caesar testifies that something has happened that has turned the world upside down. People are, in a sense, running. And you can't just step into that without, you know, as a skeptic, without saying, what did these people see that made them absolutely... And and it wasn't just theorizing. It wasn't religious like it would be for us, where we have to have faith because we're so far away from the event. This is touching the homes and villages and cities where they would have had direct knowledge as to whether Jesus was a miracle worker who had raised from the dead. You know, the Passover feast, Jerusalem swelled to hundreds of thousands of people, and then they all went home to their various cities and countries and regions throughout the world, and they all go, and the gospel explodes. Why? What did these people see? What, What were they going back home and testifying about to where the church explodes so much so that by the time you get to 64 AD, you know, just three decades later, when Rome burns down, you have Emperor Nero that we're told is putting an immense multitude of Christians to death. Like, and you have to ask the question, well, how in the world are there an immense, within three decades, how in the world are there, how's there an immense multitude of people? You know, the first writings that we start finding from the Apostle Paul are only two decades after, after the resurrection. And so, I mean, you, there were, and he claims, you know, that there's tons of witnesses. There's 500 witnesses that appeared to him that Jesus appeared to right after the resurrection. And so the equivalent of that would be like if I said 9-11 didn't happen. You know, that's only 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. There's lots of people still alive that would be happy to tell me to shut up if I said 9-11 didn't happen. Right. There's people who have that seared into their memory, people who've lost loved ones, people who were directly impacted into that. And to say that when the Apostle Paul and all of these writings start coming out saying that the resurrection happened, that they could have gotten away with that 
No way. There's still tons of people alive who could who could have said he didn't raise from the dead. Here's his tomb. Go look. The body's still there. You know, like why in the world did this movement blow up all over the world? If you're a skeptic or somebody who denies and says, "Oh, people don't come back from the dead," you've got to answer that question, right? Because I can't make sense of it. Why in the world these apostles who knew absolutely for sure whether or not they were lying about the resurrection? It, was, it wasn't on faith. They knew they were either lying or they had seen the risen Lord. Without exception, every one of them was willing to lay down his life. Yeah. yeah. What Rome ultimately had going for it was the strength of their military prowess. Their, their soldiers were the best equipped, best trained. And, and the bottom line was, if you crossed Rome, what happened? <laughs> you, yeah, you, you, you died. You didn't live very long. You didn't live very long. And yet, here you have a group of people that know for sure that death is no longer the end because they've seen the risen Savior and they know for a fact that if the Romans were to put them to death, it's not the end. At that point, they have nothing. <laughs> they have no, they, there's nothing they can threaten you with, you know? When the worst thing that you can do to me is tell me, go to your room, that's not a big threat, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not intimidated by that. It's the single event that's changed the world really more than anything else there's never been anything else in history that has has remade the world like that and not even close yeah not even close so all of these things that we talked about today the the connection between the symbols of the resurrection and uh, yom kippur would have been intensely meaningful to the people that were there at the time they would have understood every single part of that and Mm -hmm. and that's really the you know that's really the connection that we want you to walk away with uh from this week's episode but coming up next week sam what are we going to tell them so we're going to dive deeper into the evidences of why you can trust the historical veracity the the trustworthiness of the resurrection because there's a lot of evidence that's really compelling and we're going to make the folks at uh, CSI happy. We're talking real forensic level stuff here. Sam's going to dive deep and, uh, and <laughs> uncover all of the uh, old tablets and scrolls, and we're going to have this thing figured out. It's, it's really impressive stuff. Like, it, 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 for the skeptic in me, I can't answer this apart from the resurrection. This, yeah. evidence, this evidence really does point to the fact that Jesus has risen. Well, we'll let that be the cliffhanger that we're ending on for this week. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us and that you have found it to be profitable and enjoyable. Uh, We'd like to invite you to uh, communicate with us if you have any questions or comments about this show or any other show that we do. You can send us email. The email address is simply outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O-vistachurch.com. Send us an email with your comment, your question, or maybe a topic that you'd like to see us cover. Uh, If you'd like to check out all of the back episodes of the podcast, you can can find that at our website at riovistachurch.com slash out of water or you can find it as always on apple podcasts google play or spotify we'll talk to you again real soon we hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly you can find out more about out of water catch up on past episodes and access show notes at our website riovistachurch.com slash out of water